0: Hey, what's up? It's episode 36, Pain Points of Wealth. We've got a great show for you today. We've got Kenny Polkary, managing partner at Case Capital Advisors. He's chief market strategist at Slate Stone Wealth and managing director at Campfire Capital. And most importantly, he was one of the most famous stock exchange traders going back to the eighties. And no one gives you a better tour of the New York Stock Exchange than Ken. I can tell you personally, we're going to wrap with him this morning about what's going on with inflation, the economy, investing. And on the tipping point of wealth today, we're gonna talk about bonds. Bonds are going down. Do you own bond funds? We're gonna break it down for you, tell you exactly what you should be doing with bonds. So let's hit it. We got a great show.
1: Turn on the music. Let's hop to it. Welcome to the Pain Points of Wealth, the podcast that addresses the pain points that come with creating, growing, and sustaining your wealth, giving you a multi-generational perspective from three pains in a pod, Bob Payne, the boomer, Chris Payne, the millennial, and Ryan Payne, the generation somewhere in between.
2: So, Ken, how's it commute back to New York from Miami now? Uh,
3: it's uh, Well, it hasn't happened, right? Over the last year, we've had COVID, so therefore, I haven't been able to commute at all. Although, when I was doing it, it was a quick two-and-a-half-hour flight, which, quite honestly, when I lived in New York up in Westchester County, it could take me two-and-a-half hours to get to downtown Manhattan. So. One way or the other, it's not really much of a change.
0: Hey, Ken, you look a lot tanner than when you were working on the stock exchange. Just saying. Because the
3: sun shines down here, right? You can go outside and get some color. Unlike being in downtown Manhattan, you know, you can't.
2: So, Kenny, from watching your appearances on uh, CNBC and Fox Business, and Ryan, you seem to agree that there's a lot more inflation coming our way than uh, our Federal Reserve chief is telling us. So, what are your thoughts on inflation right now?
3: So, listen, and I've been saying it for a while, and I've been writing about it in my note. We've been talking about it on television, but you can feel it, right? If you live in this world, if you go out shopping, you go out to the stores, you can feel the price increases. You can see it. And so, therefore, I don't need the CPI or some government report telling me that there's no inflation when I go out there and I feel that there's plenty of inflation all around, right? I mean, everybody sees it. Everybody's talking about it. Yet, you know, the government doesn't want to admit that we've got it. And so my sense is that it's building and it's building and my sense is it's going to rear its ugly head. It's not going to be temporary or transitory the way that the Fed keeps telling us it's going to be. I think we're going to see this spike in the next month or the month after. But then my sense is it's going to remain and that's going to then change the whole story, the whole Fed story, the CPI story, the inflation story, how hot is hot. Define hot. You know, you and I can define it one way. The Fed is clearly going to define it a different way to fit their story to fit their narrative and that's going to be the part where i think the market's going to have a difficult time and investors are going to have to figure out what's the definition of hot to them and then what's that mean to valuations.
0: Well i think there's two camps out there. You have a lot of strategists saying that it is transitory that the tech trade that's been so hot for a decade is going to continue to be hot and then you have another camp and i'd say we're in this camp that says that the world's changed, right? We've got 25% more money supply. Like you said every day you look at you know wheat prices the highest level since 2014, copper, steel, housing prices, whatever, it's all going up, which says your portfolio today has to look a lot different than it did in the last 10 years, Karen.
3: Well, that might be true. That very well might be true. And it does look a lot different, right? Because asset prices have risen. They've risen as a direct result of what every central bank around the world has done. In my opinion, I think we've gone way too far. And I think now we're in this, it feels like we're in this blow off stage. I don't know what's happening in housing prices by you, but housing prices down here are just out of control. And I don't see how it can continue because at some point, The average person just can't afford seven, eight, nine hundred million dollars for a starter home. They just can't do it. And when rates start to tick up, that's when you're going to see. Because if we get inflation and we get this rapid recovery, the Fed is going to be behind the eight ball and they're going to have to make that move. And Bob, you and I can remember this because in 1980, rates were 21 percent. So for everyone who says, I don't know what I'm talking about and I'm a dinosaur, we lived it. And so therefore, it's not impossible to see rates go back to that level. And in my opinion, we've had such unprecedented stimulus to this economy for a dozen plus years that my fear is that when it happens, the Fed is not going to be able to control it because we're in a place where we've never been before. It's like the Starship Enterprise, right? Go where no man has never gone. This is where we are. And so that's my fear about uh, what the future holds, right? And what's going to happen? Listen, you can't tell me there's not a bubble in housing prices. There absolutely is a bubble in housing prices. And when rates start to rise, that's when you're going to see housing prices correct, and they'll correct, in my opinion, fairly significantly. They're going to have to.
2: Yeah, I remember the old uh, argument that real estate prices never really decline. They go up, and then they go sideways, and then they go up again. You know, I hear that starting to hear that argument.
3: Well, I don't know. But again, Bob, you and I lived it, right? So I don't necessarily think that that's true, that real estate prices never go down. In fact, they went down during the financial crisis. They went down in the late 70s when interest rates at 21%, housing prices got clobbered. Housing, real estate was, you know, people couldn't sell houses, right? I mean, because it was too expensive. I remember my first mortgage was 14.5% on the very first house I bought. My mother and father thought I was crazy.
0: I don't feel bad for you guys. You could have locked in the treasury yields at 20% back then, so it's not that big a deal.
3: But listen, that's exactly what people were doing. They were taking their money to the bank and giving their money to a banker who put it in a CD, guaranteed 21%, sleep at night, no risk, thank you very much, no Johnson Johnson, no Tesla risk, no you know GE, no Bank of America, nothing, 21% guarantee. And listen, there's nothing wrong with GE and Bank of America, and Johnson & Johnson, they're fine American companies, but when interest rates are 22%, guaranteed sleep at night, no risk, hello, I'm going to the bank every single day of the week. And that's what people did. Father, am I right or wrong? That's what people did. 1980, 81, 82. It wasn't until the summer of 1982 when the Fed, Paul Volcker, who was Fed chair, Ronald Reagan was president. They had just passed the Ronald Reagan tax reform package. And the Fed chair decided he was going to break the back of inflation because that was running at 13%. Unemployment was running at 10%. And how did he do that? He did exactly what the Fed has done, right? They cut interest rates. At that point on Tuesday, August 17, 1982, they cut interest rates by 10%. think about that for one minute. 10% was two percentage points. Today they're talking about raising rates by a quarter of 1%, and everybody's stamping their feet. Oh my God, oh my God, are you out of your mind? And so what happened in August 1982 was the birth of the greatest bull market this country and world has ever known, right? And it lasted for 25 years because rates went from 22% down to what was normal, you know, 4% to 5%, maybe 6% in there a little bit back and forth, but those were normal rates. Now they're at zero can only go higher. They're not going any lower, right? They're only going to go higher. And so that's kind of where I'm coming from. You know, I love when people say to me, that I'm delusional when I say rates can go up to 10 or 15 or 20% as if they were never there before.
2: Yeah, right, right. Well, that's because, Kenny, there's nobody left from the business that started the 70s. Bingo. And they don't know. They don't remember. They don't have any memory of interest rates going up.
3: And listen, and I'm not going to make a comment, but Chris and Ryan were not around when that was the way it was.
0: Hey, Ken, I'm just impressed that interest rates can fire you up this much. I've never seen anyone get so fired about interest rates. But here's to kind of switch gears kind of in the same vein, though is, so we're talking a lot about the depreciation of the dollar, which we've seen a lot of, and a lot of that has to do with the fact that you're getting growth rates around the world, which are more impressive. But I'm hearing a lot of talk about how Bitcoin is going to be that currency inflation hedge that everyone needs to own. I don't know, Ken, I'm not sure I'm buying it, but I feel like you're not buying it either.
3: Well, I have to be honest with you. I was not a Bitcoin believer You know, two or three years ago. I absolutely not. I thought it was the next fad coming above. I will say, Over the last year, I'm starting to change my tune a little bit. I'm not completely sure. And as a matter of fact, it's so funny. I'm doing a podcast interview today on this crypto expert out of London. It's going to be a fascinating conversation on my podcast. But one way or the other, we can talk about that. afterwards. But I have become a little bit more open to the idea that Bitcoin and these cryptocurrencies are, in fact, going to be something. I'm not sure they're going to be the currency because we can't have a currency that swings 5 10 15% in a day and a half. I mean, look what happened to Bitcoin from Sunday to Monday. It was down 18% overnight. And nobody can even explain why, unless it was Tesla selling their $101 million worth of Bitcoin that he announced yesterday in his earnings call. Oh, look, by the way, just to prove it was liquid. Yeah, sure, you knocked the thing down 18%, right? But it's liquid, okay. But one way or the other, I am starting to believe that people should have some exposure there should be whatever call it what you want three percent five percent you know i wouldn't put more than five percent of a portfolio into the cryptocurrencies but and i'm not talking about doggy coin that's a whole nother issue i'm talking about ethereum i'm talking about bitcoin and maybe litecoin would be the three that i would play in but if somebody had exposure somewhere between two and five percent i don't think that's necessarily a bad thing because listen if it blows up is it going to kill your portfolio no but if it in fact becomes Something really real, it's certainly going to benefit you. So that's kind of the stance I'm taking now. I'm not completely sold on it yet, but I'm also of the idea that I can't completely ignore it either, right? I've got to dip my toe in the water a little bit.
0: Well, it's a little uh, alarming when you have Brian Armstrong, the uh, CEO of Coinbase, selling basically, let's say, a good majority of his shares into the open market about a week and a half ago. Like, that can't be a good sign. Well, but wait
3: a minute. Let's talk about that. Because you know what? I got into a tit for tat with someone on Twitter the other day. Exactly, bringing up this point, because here's the deal. The Coinbase IPO was a direct listing. It wasn't the traditional IPO. So in a traditional IPO, the company locks up everybody on the inside, they can't sell anything, and they issue new shares to be sold to the public. In a direct listing, that's not how it happens at all. It is exactly the insiders
0: That's the majority of the shares.
3: Well, because in my opinion, the guy saw this huge opportunity to make a lot of money. I don't think it says anything about Bitcoin because Coinbase is nothing but an exchange in which you trade these cryptocurrencies, right? I don't think it says anything in my mind. All him doing by selling a majority of the shares was he's going, he sees his big, big target going, cha-ching, here's my opportunity and I don't care. And if nobody sees to give me a hard time, look, they paid up $153 to get those shares. That guy's not an idiot, in my opinion. I thought he was pretty smart. Hello, because now he's got actual real cash in the bank. Kenny reminds
2: me when Blackstone won public right before the uh, market topped in 08. It's like almost as if, well, why are you going to sell your shares if you think things are going a lot higher?
3: Well, because maybe, in fact, that's what he's telling you. Cha ching, he sees the market top, so he wants out. And you know what? That's fine. But if there were plenty of people lining up to buy those shares, they obviously have a different opinion, right? They still think the market's so hot that it's going higher. Look what Kathy Woods did. She bought hundreds of millions of dollars worth of Coinbase, and she bought it on the day it came out. She's been buying it every day after, right? So she's got a very different opinion about where these stocks are going.
2: Well, I used to listen to you and Ryan, but now I only follow Kathy Woods because she's the new authority. Is that unbelievable? I mean, listen, Kathy
3: Witts for president, as I'm concerned, I think she's going to set. She puts it right out there. She's buying all these tech disruptors. She challenges everybody. She sticks to her story. She doesn't get you know thrown off target. If somebody challenges her, she just comes right back. I think she's great. And here's another thing. All her investments are about the future. They're about tech disruptors. That's another thing. I think people have to have a portion of their portfolio in the future, in tech disruptor type names. And the easiest way to do that, instead of picking one or two names and hoping that you pick the right one, screw it. I'm jumping on Kathy Woods' bandwagon because she seems to have them all right in place.
0: I don't know, Ken. It sounds like the Janus Forty Fund back in '99, 2000. <laughs> i to be honest with you. <laughs> I remember selling out of that sucker at 50, 60 percent losses for people. Uh, only like a year or two later, after everyone wanted in.
2: Uh, we have the ultimate indicator, right? When Marilyn brings out their fund, we know that's the top.
3: Yeah, but I will tell you, I will say this is different from the Janus 40 fund only because I think, in fact, the world is in a different place.
0: It's got a different name. Well, it's a
3: different name, but, well, I think the world is in a different place, right? I'm not suggesting that stock's not, you know, her fund is not going down and those stocks aren't going down. They certainly will. And if the market corrects by 20%, the way Morgan Stanley says, those stocks are going to get absolutely clumbered because they've got such stretched valuations. I get it. But the fact is, I still believe whether or not they come in, whether or not they come under pressure, I still believe that is the future. So if they do, I'm going to use that as an opportunity. I'm not going to panic in that sense.
2: But, you know, speaking about, uh, you know, Morgan Stanley and their market call, I mean, after 2020, where no strategist predicted a pandemic correction and the fastest recovery in history, why would we listen to any strategist about any prediction?
3: I hear you. And so that's fair enough. And maybe you don't. But I think what you have to listen to is you got to take in all this chatter that goes around. You have to listen to what people do say, whether or not you think the guy's right or wrong. You got to listen to the argument and then make your own, right? You come to your own decision. Now, I don't think we're getting a 20% correction at all, right? I've been calling for somewhere between a 5 to 7% correction. To me, that would be fair, right? That would be kind of take some of the fluff out. But I will say, if the Fed suddenly changes their tone and changes their tune and starts using different language in their policy statement on Wednesday, then you might actually see the market come under a swift reaction. Now, it may not get out 20%, but it'll go down a quick 10% in a day and a half, and it'll be like, oh, my God, what the hell just happened, right? Because it'll happen that quickly. It won't happen slowly the way it used to before the automation. The automation will make it happen. It'll happen before you even know it. And that'll be the part that rattles people.
0: Yeah, we spent half our show just making fun of strategists and how wrong they get it over and over again. So we'll see if we get that correction or not. But man, oh man, if I, if Morgan Stanley didn't have a wrong opinion, they wouldn't have an opinion at all.
3: I hope you're not doing any business with Morgan Stanley. Then I gotta like you.
2: <laughs> no, we're just trying to take all their business away from them, Kenny. That's a whole different business plan. Well, listen, Ken, we took in a lot of time this morning.
0: It's a real honor to have a real legend on Wall Street on the show, man. <laughs>
3: you're killing me. You're making me sound like I'm a dinosaur. Oh, did I just say that? Hey, you, you might be a year younger than Bob for all we know. So I don't know. So, <laughs> 1961, I was born. I just
2: turned 60. We look damn good at that plan. Well, you're a puppy as far as I'm concerned.
3: Yeah, thank you, Bob. You and I, we're in very good company. What do they know? They have no idea.
0: And Ken, just to give you a quick plug, you know, we read your notes every morning religiously. You have great insights. I know you got up at like 3.30 to write them. How can our listeners access your notes? How can they subscribe? Because they're just awesome, in my opinion.
3: Well, thank you very much. It's a free note, as you know. So you can subscribe by going to my website, which is just my name, kennypolkari.com. Scroll down to the bottom of the front page, and there's a big subscribe button there. You can put your email address in there if you want. The other way, you can get it on Twitter. It appears on my LinkedIn. And it also appears on my Bloomberg profile page. So if you have a Bloomberg machine, you want to get it there, you can also get it there.
0: Awesome. Ken, thank you very much. Great to see you, my brother. And I wish your energy levels were just a little higher. Well,
3: you're very welcome. And I'll talk to you soon.
0: Hey, I hope you're enjoying this episode of Pain Points of Wealth. If you like our content, maybe you love our content, don't be shy. Click on that like button. You can subscribe, get our weekly podcast delivered right to your inbox every single week. Don't be shy. I'll leave a comment. All right, gentlemen, it's the tipping point. We pinpoint the pain point, of course, that's P-A-Y-N-E, having the biggest impact on your wealth right now. And Bob and Chris, we talk a lot about how we don't like bond funds, especially here on our podcast. And with some bond funds now down over 15% over the last 12 months, I thought we could discuss with our listeners exactly how bonds work and what role, if any, they should be playing in your portfolio right now.
2: Hey, Chris, what the heck is going on this week? We first we have on Kenny Paul Carey, and he's Brian gets them all riled up about interest rates. And now your brother wants to talk about something even more boring, bonds. I mean, what's going on here? <laughs> well, it's not boring when you see things
0: going down 15, 20%, like fixed income right now. And I think the big message that we got from the beginning of this show, and I think something we've talked about week after week, is we're starting to see costs go up, whether it's in food, whether it's in housing prices. And what happens when the costs of goods and services go up, that means interest rates go up. And when interest rates go
2: up, that has a very, very negative effect on any sort of bonds that y'all. Now, First of all, Ryan, when you're talking about bond funds, they're not fixed income. It's like calling a Ferrari a donkey. A bond fund is something that doesn't work. It can't work when you have inflation rising, you have interest rates rising, and interest rates are barely up, right? We're only at 1.5% of the 10-year treasury. And you're telling me, Ryan, that there's bond funds down 14% year to date? It's April 27th. Well, the crazy part about that,
0: Bob, is the fact that interest rates have only gone up a little bit. And if interest rates continue to rise, maybe you have a 14 15% loss on your bonds. Well, that could just be the tip of the iceberg. And why it's so, so important to think about this right now is because the whole idea of owning bonds is to have safety in your portfolio. But if you have an investment that can go down like 15 20%, I don't know, Chris, that doesn't seem like safety to me.
4: No, it's not safe at all, right? so let's talk a little bit about how bonds work. What is a bond exactly? And a bond is basically a loan. So in this case, as an investor in bonds, you act like the bank and you're loaning money out to corporations in the form of corporate bonds, municipalities in the form of municipal bonds, the United States government, in the form of US treasuries. And the whole idea is that you're lending them money for a set period of time. And when that period of time is over, not only do you get your principal, the original amount of money that you invested in that bond, but you also get interest as payment for lending that money.
2: So Chris, basically what you're saying is it's not the return on the money, it's return of the money. Another reasons why I told you guys never to lend money to your brother-in-law, you know, because number one, you don't get the interest and you don't get your money back. It's a double loser. But it's almost like you take a fixed income safe investment and Wall Street packages it into these mutual funds and they make it into an equity-like risk where there is no maturity date because if interest rates go up, all bonds go down. But if you have a bond that comes due, you get to take advantage of that, right? You get to invest at a higher interest rate. Bond funds are weapons of mass financial destruction. Well, Bob, yeah. And to
0: break it down, you always said in simple Bob terms is when you own a bond, you want permanence and definition. And all that means is you know the interest rate that you're getting and you know there's a set date in the future that your money's going to be returned to you. And as we've learned, you don't have those same certainties in the stock market, right? I can't say I'm going to put my money in the stock market and know at a certain date in the future, I'm going to get my money back and I'm going to get a certain return But when you own bonds outright, it's that simple. You know who you're lending to. You know what they're going to pay you in interest to borrow your money. And you know the set date in the future that they're going to return your money. But to your point is when Wall Street packages these bonds into a bond fund, it takes away the permanence and definition. And that's the big problem
4: with owning a bond fund. Right. Not only does the permanency and definition go away when you own a bond fund, but there's also the question of quality. You guys remember back in 2015, there were a lot of municipal bond funds that were being AAA rated, meaning they had the highest possible credit rating that still held Puerto Rican bonds. And you guys remember what happened to Puerto Rico a few years ago, they defaulted on their debt, which means that the holders of those bonds lost their money.
2: Well, that's the thing, guys. When you think about the bond portfolio, it's part of the portfolio. Like You have over time, stocks outperform bonds, bonds outperform cash. So why not just have all your money in stocks? It just comes down to risk, right? I mean, look, I love the stock market.
0: We talked about the stock market being a great place to invest long-term on our show. It's just very, very volatile. You have years where the market can go down 50, 60%. And the question is, do you want to see your hard-earned dollars or your nest egg fluctuate by 50, 60% in any given year? Well, you know, most of us can't handle that. So the idea of owning bonds is have that ballast in your portfolio that offset a lot of that volatility. But the problem is it's how you own them. Going back to what we've been talking about, you know, if you own them outright, they're high quality bonds that come due. Well, then yes, that takes a lot of risk out of your portfolio. But if you're owning these bond funds where nothing comes due, and to your point, Chris, if you actually look inside and see what these bond funds own, they end up owning riskier bonds. So not only don't you have a maturity on your portfolio,
2: but you have a higher risk investment that you didn't even know you owned. I would argue, guys, that a balanced portfolio can actually outperform a portfolio that's 100% invested in the stock market. Just look at last year. When the stock market dropped almost 40% if you didn't have any money in bonds or cash in order to take advantage of stocks when they're on sale, you didn't perform as well in your portfolios as our clients did by rebalancing their portfolio when stocks went on sale. Most likely, if you're 100% in stocks, you panic and sold at a loss and you're still waiting to get back in. Risk is inherent. Risk is something that's only recognized in hindsight. You want to be a winner in the stock market? Make sure you own the right bonds in your bond portfolio.
0: Bob, Chris, and I have now spent a collective 70 years helping individuals just like you with their planning and investing. This is literally what we do every single day. Everything we teach you here on this podcast, along with some due diligence of your own, can help you get ahead financially at any stage of your journey. But if you have over $500,000 and you want a more hands-on approach and guidance, you can apply for a free financial review. Simply go to www.paincm.com slash financial plan or click on the link below. We can put together a full audit of your investments, the fees you're paying, tax optimization, and a complete savings and income plan to ensure you're on the right path to achieving financial independence. Simply go to www.paincm.com slash financial plan to see if you qualify for a free financial review. Hey, I hope you're enjoying episode 36, Pain Points of Wealth. If you like our content, you love our content, you think I'm witty, Go ahead, don't be shy. Subscribe to our channel, click the like button, put a comment below, help us get the good word out. We've literally doubled our podcast listenership over the last month. We appreciate that. So give us some love, give us a like, subscribe to our channel. All right, boys, the hidden facts of finance random financial facts that may surprise you or even shock you. So, Bob, Binance, a popular crypto platform, investors can utilize leverage of 125 to 1 for some futures contracts. Mean they can deposit just 80 cents to amass the equivalent of $100 of
2: Bitcoin. That's pretty scary. Pretty scary, right? 125 to 1 leverage. Our former employer, Merrill Lynch, leveraged their balance sheet 35 to 1 and ended up going bankrupt and now they're Bank of America. Oh, this is not going to end well. Nothing's more of a weapon of mass financial destruction than leverage.
0: I'm with you. I think this crypto thing isn't going to end well. Chris, Moody's Analytics estimates households worldwide have $5.4 trillion in pandemic-related savings at the end of the first quarter. Man, that's a lot of cash that's going to get spent. Well,
4: I don't know about you guys, but I spent about 50% of what I normally spend last year. And I'll tell you what, if Ryan, you and I were just in Miami, and if that's any indication of what's going to happen when the floodgates fully open, that money's going to find its way back into the economy.
0: Let the world party start. It's going to get crazy. Bob, podcaster, are on track to bring in more than $1 billion in revenue this year from advertising in the US for the first time an estimated 116 million Americans, or 41% of the US population over the age of 12, are now listening to podcasts. At 11% increase over 2020, I think we're on the right platform.
2: Well, Ryan, I know we're on the right platform because I tried to watch the Oscars the other night and it was unwatchable. I'd much rather listen to a podcast, especially ours. Preferably pain points of wealth. Chris, exchange-traded funds
0: took in a record $502 billion in investor cash last year. Traditional mutual funds, on the other hand, said goodbye to a record $289 billion.
4: Well, let's see. Exchange-traded funds are typically less expensive and more tax-efficient. And as we say, paying capital management, any money saved in taxes and fees is just as green as money made in the market.
0: Exchange-traded funds are new school. Mutual funds are old school. You heard it here first. All right. We talked about this earlier in the show, but Brian Armstrong, Coinbase co-founder, CEO, and chairman, sold 750,000 shares of his Coinbase stock on April 14th for a total of $292 million, for an average share price of $389. The CEO selling all his shares, is that a good sign, Bob, for cryptocurrencies?
2: It's like I checked, Rye, the most insider inside the company, of any company, is the CEO. And if they're selling something, especially 750,000 shares, the majority of their holdings, I don't think they're telling us they think it's going to go higher. It's always a bad sign, like Tesla last year selling
0: stock. You've got Coinbase CEO selling their stock. When the insiders are selling, you probably shouldn't be buying. All right, gentlemen, another great show. And if you like our podcast, you're into what we have to say. Don't be shy. Click the like button, subscribe to our channel. And as always, stay loose and keep an open mind.
1: Thanks for listening to The Pain Points of Wealth. Hopefully, you found the ideas discussed in this episode valuable and useful for your own financial journey. You can find out more about Bob, Brian, and Chris's firm, Payne Capital Management, at BeBullish.com or through the contact information found in the description of this episode in your podcast player or app. Join us next week for another episode of The Pain Points of Wealth, brought to you by Payne Capital Management